You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 21st, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. What is this? Podcasting. And Evan Bernstein. <laughs> good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everyone? Hola, Evan. Fine and dandy. Now, this was some winter, huh? Uh, oh, so this is my kind of winter. Way. We barely had any snow this year in New England. It was in the 50s for a large part of the winter in southern New England, which is unheard of. I love the uh, the vernal equinox because it means the next six months the sun is in the upper half of its course throughout the sky. I hope all of you have uh, released your white owls. Well, anyway, Rebecca... What else is special about this day? Well, uh, this day marks the anniversary of a quite horrific event. March 24th, 1989 was the day that the Exxon Valdez spilled oil into Prince William Sound. No, you just can't let it go, can you, Rebecca? <laughs> no, no, me and the otters. <laughs> the otters. really pissed you know, about it still. One... One drunk sea captain, you know, I think guides the boat into the low, uh, into apparently the that's low, low a, shoals. And apparently that's a bit of a pays for it for myth. the rest of his life. Uh, the captain apparently was drunk, but was not uh, at the helm. The third mate was. And on the list of things, what went wrong, the biggest one seems to be that the radar for detecting possible collisions had been broken for nearly a year. Uh, also, and the captain was too drunk to know it. <laughs> well, <laughs> apparently, so we'll get to that um, eventually. <laughs> and apparently, all of the uh, the crew was severely overworked and exhausted, and had been for quite some time. So those were identified as being the the main causes of why it ended up striking a reef and spilling up to possibly 750,000 barrels of oil. It's not, I mean, however... Think, of all, the, it's, think of all the cars and furnaces that would have provided <laughs> heat and energy for. It's very sad. Yeah. Uh, despite how devastating that oil spill was, it's not even in the top 10 worst oil spills of all time. It was the, the worst one in the U.S. up until the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that there, there are oil spills happening like all the time and they're, some of them are much, much worse than the Exxon Valdez. Yeah, there's a happy thought for you. The, uh, the ship itself was recently auctioned off, actually. Um, just, uh, the, the tanker. Just this week, it was sold for scrap. So apparently, it was renamed the Oriental Nicety, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess, as some way to for real <laughs> trick oh people gosh. into thinking it might, was a. You might as well call it the Happy End. <laughs> Oriental Nicety. I mean, what the um, hell? That's odd. Uh, yeah, I have a funny yeah. Exxon Valdez story. I was in um, Epcot Center in Disney World shortly after that uh, oil spill, and the dinosaur um, exhibit was, I guess, funded by Exxon, and. Before you get to see the dinosaurs, there's essentially a big commercial for Exxon. At one point, they they have like this aerial shot of an oil tanker going through a harbor, and they go, the beautiful Exxon Valdez. Of course, everyone (laughs) starts laughing because this was like right after the disaster. They hadn't updated the ride Uh. yet. 
Time to update the ride. That's a little embarrassing. Here's my question. I've always heard people call it the Exxon Valdez, but I don't understand why they pronounce it Valdez when it's obviously Valdez. I don't know. I'm just slavishly following what I hear. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's weird. But at least at least we can have our, our superhero magical bracelets to make it all better, right, Jay? Nice segue. That was a good segue, Steve. Oh, you know, it kind of takes yeah. away from it when you say it's a good segue. I know. That's why it's funny. <laughs> and every single time, Steve, you will never be able to do a segue without us calling attention okay. to it. This is your I mean, curse. You know, Steve jumped right into it. I wanted to loosen up a little bit before we uh, we say bad things about Marvel to say some good things about Marvel, like... You know, I think that for their superhero movies, uh, they've done a great job. You know, for the most part, I've, I've liked all of them. And, you know, the Avenger, Avengers movie's coming out, and I'm really psyched to see it. It's really, it's totally right in my, my sweet spot. I mean, I love superheroes. I love, like, you know, science fiction-y stuff like that. So it really was disappointing to find out that Marvel, and probably even more involved, is the production company that they're using and the marketing company that they're, they've hired for the for the Avengers film is sadly ha- has uh, is selling some crazy wacky merchandise. So they are selling a magic bracelet, a real magic bracelet, you know, a la power band type BS. Um, <laughs> As opposed to those that fake magic bracelet. They have the uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a toy. One. They're making actual claims for it. Yeah, they are. Here, I'll get into some of the details here. The limited edition Mag Titan Neo Legend has a carbon fiber surface finished with a coat of transparent resin that yields an attractive stylish design. Oh, I thought you were going to say transparent aluminum. <laughs> that would have been impressive. Uh, 100 MT, 1,000 Gauss, ferrite permanent magnets arranged in Colin Tote's unique alternating north-south polarity orientation, which is... Ooh. Which is... Uh, <laughs> unique. They've trademarked ANSPO, ANSPO trademark. Uh-huh. I'm holding so out for the east-west polarity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you do, yeah, I'm there too. They, they're saying that because they have like alternating strips of magnets with the um, north-south polarity alternating, right? Right. Yes, and that's supposed to be unique to this. That's exactly how you make a refrigerator magnet. <laughs> Now wait a minute. What are you accusing them of? Yeah, that's a refrigerator. That's how that's how the refrigerator <laughs> magnets have a very you know uh, narrow of depth, but but relatively strong for the power of the magnets used. Attraction, right? That's why, like when you pull a refrigerator a refrigerator magnet off of the refrigerator, it's really strong over a very short distance, but it very quickly right drops off, you know, gives way. That's because they have alternating strips of, of north and south, you know, poles in the magnet. Yeah, but, but Steve, Steve is a refrigerator magnet made of adamantium. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, Steve, a come really on. good refrigerator magnet. <laughs> Steve, you know, you could say what you will, okay, and put it down, but. Each limited edition Mag Titan Neo Legend comes in a special limited edition package commemorating Marvel's The Avengers movie. So of course it's work. It's work, Steve. You got to buy this thing because the Avengers are real. <laughs> now, I, so I'm, you know, I'm perusing the uh, the website, and I have to admit the design of it's pretty cool. But you know, I'm going around the website, and I was nosing around the SGU forums, and they were chit chatting about it, and they came up with a, a couple of interesting things. Uh, somebody on our forum said that um, that this is basically proven. To work in Japan, like to have a real a medical benefit in Japan, I couldn't find any proof of that. So if if anybody does, I'd be interested to read it for myself. But what they do have on the website is, of course, they have uh, firsthand comments by professional athletes. Oh, here we go. 
The Magtite Neo Legend is Colin Tot's <laughs> finest gear. The combination of pure titanium and carbon fiber is great. Plus, it's been created specifically to commemorate Marvel's Avengers movie. Two things, two comments, ready? One, that guy did not write that. He did not say that. <gasps> no. And if that guy walks around talking like that, he needs help. Don't you love it when anecdotes like that are written in ad copy? Right. You know, like it's so obviously written by some sales guy, and, and it's supposed to be a spontaneous endorsement or, or, or anecdote from somebody. It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's so transparent. Steve, pretend I'm Rory McIlroy and, uh, and, and ask me about that bracelet I'm wearing. Hey, can you tell me about that bracelet you're wearing? The Magtite Neo Legend is Colantot's finest gear. The combination of pure titanium and carbon fiber is great. Yeah, right. That's really natural. I think it, I think it, Rory has a Scottish accent, actually. Don't even. If memory serves. <laughs> the Magtite Neo Legend is Colantot's finest gear. <laughs> what? What, what was I'll take swords for 400. <laughs> I think you just invented a new accent that's never been heard before. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just shouting. It's like a Klingon variant. <laughs> so anyway, the second thing from that guy's endorsement that makes me shudder is he says, I, I can't wait to go see this movie with my mates My mates to watch Colin Tot's Mag Titan Neo Legend in action. Does this mean it's in the movie? Is it in the I movie, clearly- Marvel? Seriously. Oh, I guess so. Some, I mean, you got, you got to, to give it movie. to him. I mean, it's pretty brilliant having a magic bracelet be on a superhero. I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's marketing you, you, is good. Okay, the marketing yeah. idea is good, especially because most people w- will probably buy into it, even if it, it's just because it looks good. But, you know, it, it's probably very, still better than those Green Lantern rings. <laughs> it's, it's a sad state of affairs of when a company like Marvel, which is a company that produces fantasy, right? You know, they're actually oh, yeah. still doing it, morphing into reality here and saying, you know, let's let's cash in on on the fact that you know we write about magic and sell magic. Yep. So I'm a little Jay, tweaked at Marvel right now. What has this yeah, world come the, to? Paying the bills, Jay. On the website, the it shows a picture of the bracelet, and it's, underneath it says the superhero secret. Yeah. Oh wow! Really? That's their secret, huh? Two little magnets on their wrist. I thought it was licking radiation. Bob, we should try that. That's a secret. So you're saying it doesn't work, Jay? Can can we agree that DC maybe is taking a notch up due to this? And maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It comes out April first. I couldn't find any pricing. I bet you it's going to be in the you know sixty to one hundred dollar range. April first, really? April first. Hmm. What do you think? You think the whole thing's a hoax? Something hoaxy this week. I don't think so, and no. I'll tell you why. The company no. the company that produces the bracelet, I, I researched them. They make a lot of other BS stuff, the negative yeah. ion crap and all that stuff. All right, well, let's move on. We have a bit of a follow-up to um, a previous discussion we had. Fraser Kane and Pamela Gay on the show a few weeks ago. We talked about the upcoming attempted world record-breaking high uh, skydive, high-altitude skydive from uh, Felix Baumgartner. And there's a, there's a discussion and a bit of a news update. The news update is that he completed a test jump recently. Uh, he jumped from 71,500 feet or 22 kilometers above New Mexico, landing safely eight minutes later. Although this is only a test jump, that puts him in the top three in terms of the highest altitude skydives ever. This is a preparation for his planned jump later this year in which he will break the world record. Uh, he's planning to jump from 120,000 feet. So the the, the current record uh, stands 
uh, at 102,800 feet in 1960 uh, by Joe Kittinger, who was a U.S. Air Force colonel at the time. When we were talking about uh, Baumgartner's planned jump on the last episode, we mentioned the fact that it's, it's inherently dangerous to jump from such a high altitude because of uh, the velocities involved, and that Kittinger, during his jump in 1960, actually spun out of control, blacked out, and then and didn't uh, regain consciousness until after his chute had automatically deployed. So I, I, when I was researching this for for this piece, um, I found out that that's that's sort of true. But we, one thing we didn't mention is that that was that occurred on the first of Kittinger's three jumps. This was the uh, Excelsior mission, is what it was called. It was Excelsior one, two, and three. Excelsior. The, yeah, the third one was the one where he, you know, is the record that stands now at 102,800 feet. It was the first one, Excelsior 1, where he spun out of control. The reason he spun out of control didn't have anything to do with the conditions of the, the jump, the aerodynamics or the thin atmosphere or the velocity. It had to do with the fact that his pilot chute deployed too early. Uh, he, in releasing you know, from the gondola, he had to yank on you know, the, uh, the cord a few times before it came loose. But he actually started the timer on the first yank. So the timer was going before he jumped off the gondola. And then his pilot chute deployed too early. So he wasn't going fast enough. You know, normally it will only deploy after you get up sufficient speed that it will, that the aerodynamics are, su- are such that it will, it will be, you know, pulled back away from you. But he was going too slow when it deployed and, and therefore it flopped around more than it should have. And it actually wrapped around his neck and this started him spinning. He basically got tangled up in the pilot chute. He started spinning out of control. They estimate, I think 80 RPMs and he blacked out. Then, uh, he fell all the way to 10,000 feet when the barometric uh, release, uh, triggered his reserve parachute and this didn't. This got tangled too, but they had installed a a, a backup a contingency um, where the original chute would break away, and that uh, that worked, allowing the reserve chute to inflate at about six thousand feet. That that and he survived obviously and, and landed and landed safely. So the the spinning out itself was was a, a more of an equipment thing and didn't have anything to do with just the the difficulty of, of dropping from such a, a high altitude. Uh, but this whole discussion started an email discussion with a listener who, who essentially said that, this is his point, he said, if you jump at a very high altitude, the, aerodyne, the experience for the skydiver is the same because you're going to reach terminal velocity and terminal velocity is uh, by definition is the the wind resistance is going to equal the acceleration due to gravity, and therefore it doesn't really matter if it's a thin atmosphere and a high velocity or a thicker atmosphere and a, at a lower velocity, the net resistance against the skydiver is the same, so it feels the same to the skydiver. So I totally get that. And I I see no problems with that line of logic. But here was my counterpoint. It's like the difference here is that when you jump from very high where the atmosphere is thin, 
terminal velocity is a lot faster. You're going to be going a lot faster, and then you have to lose all of that extra velocity. So when you get down into the into the thicker atmosphere, you're not just you're not just approaching terminal velocity. You're already exceeding the terminal velocity of the lower lower down denser atmosphere, and therefore the wind resistance has to actually decelerate you. It has to slow you yeah. down. Drag. Yeah. So yeah. therefore, the, the drag is greater than if you jumped at the lower lower altitude and we're just getting up to terminal velocity. But he didn't agree with that point. He thought, yeah, but you're st- the, it depends on how, what, what the curve of the change in atmospheric density is. But I just, I just don't buy it. The, for example, it's estimated that during Kittinger's record-breaking jump, he reached a maximum speed of 625 miles per hour. Terminal velocity at um, you know lower down the normal you know altitudes that people skydive from is somewhere between 117 and 125 miles per hour, depending on you know your position and how your size and whatnot. And in a in like a uh, the head down bullet position, it's about 210 miles per hour. So you figure Kittinger had to lose about 500 miles per hour of velocity when he descended into the lower atmosphere, that's got to be a lot of extra force from wind resistance that you wouldn't have on you if you were jumping from, you know, say 10,000 feet, right? Isn't, so is, that's, I, I tried to find it. That's just my reasoning. I, I don't know what the final answer is. I kind of proposed it as an interesting physics question, but no one has given me like a real definitive answer. What do you guys think about all that? Steve, I agree with you. I think, you know, correct me where I'm wrong here. So from what you're saying, if you're in a thinner atmosphere, terminal velocity is going to be faster. Right. That we we all agree on. Yeah. Then um, the idea is that you will eventually stop accelerating and maintain a speed when you hit, um, when enough air molecules basically get piled up underneath you that pretty much matches what it would be like, say, jumping at 10,000 feet, Right. Yeah, it's just that you, it's it's less it's thinner air, but you're it's rushing past you faster, and the net wind resistance is the same. That's okay. right. Okay, but the th- but the, the 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 difference I'm saying is yeah, but then you descend into denser atmosphere where you have to you're not just maintaining a terminal velocity, you're, you're actually down. significantly slowing down. Yeah, because the terminal velocity is getting lower as you descend into the thicker atmosphere. The other point I raise, which no one's given me a good answer to, is. All right, so I understand the wind resistance will be the same, but you still are going faster. Your velocity is greater. So if you do spin out at a higher velocity, would that would there be the potential for for that for the RPMs to be greater? Will you spin out faster? And that's the real risk is that you'll spin out so fast that you'll black out, right? Right. Yeah. So in other words, like mm-hmm. if you if you do a a spin out at say uh, seventy or eighty thousand feet. You might actually be going so fast that you know your blood pressure goes totally crazy. Where the, where maybe the- if you're going 500 miles an hour and you spin out, is that more dangerous than when you're going 120 miles an hour? That's the question. It's it's just it's interesting. I kind of I posed that on my blog, but you know nobody really gave me a good answer. We you know Jay and I have been chatting about this, and we asked a physics friends of of ours who didn't really add anything to what we just said. So I, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting thought experiment. Maybe I will put it out there to our listeners. To, to further the conversation, I still it still seems to me that it would be more difficult and more risky to to do the high skydive because of the, it's the deceleration and the absolute velocity re, how that re- translates into spin. Those are the two points 
that I'd like to hear uh, discussed. But uh, Baumgartner is going to be making his uh, next jump later this year where he's going to try to break the record. And his, his one observation, I mean, all the equipment tested out and worked fine, but he said the cold was like really hard to handle. So before he goes... And his hands were actually so numb he couldn't use them. Yeah. So before he goes up higher... Ooh, so his good. test dive was from 71,500 feet. He's going to 120,000 feet. That's going to be a lot thinner, a lot colder. So yeah, I think they're going to have to tweak the spacesuit there that he has uh, if he's going to be able to tolerate the cold at that height. Just put those heat packets in the gloves. That's all. Yeah. Or those mittens that you put in the microwave. Oh, there, there are those people who like go into like the minus 120 degree refrigerators for like 10 seconds. You guys hear about that? Yeah. yeah. Why would you do that? Because well, why do you think? Because wow. it's supposed to have some magical health benefit. Oh, uh, yeah. I think I think I read it. it's supposed to be invigorating. Invigorating. <laughs> invigorating? Yeah, you know okay. what else is? A cold shower. They used to That's they used nothing. to throw cold wet blankets on psychotic patients to calm them down. Yeah. That, that you, <laughs> very calming effect. It, it would shock stretch. them. You know, they would be having, you know, whatever, they would be out of control and that would shock them into just shutting down. You know, just that real sudden extreme cold. Steve, aren't you really just a, supposed to slap someone silly when they freak out like that? Like, oh, you're that's about as scientifically yeah, valid. Real electricity. Too. Yeah, according to like the '50s movies, you know, all you got to do when someone's having a hissy fit, you just smack them. And go, you know, <laughs> get yourself together, man. Get a hold of yeah, yourself, woman, yourself. You know, something like that, right? <laughs> Stop crying. I'll give you something to yeah. cry about. <laughs> oh, you know what I just read? Rebecca wants a quickie with Bob. Oh, that's true. That's true. I do. Oh, sure, Rebecca. But will you hold me afterwards? Yeah. Don't answer that question. Okay, the, this week's I'm not into that cuddly shit. <laughs> For this week's Quickie with Bob, uh, I've got a new era of designer electrons. Researchers at Stanford and the Slack National Accelerator Lab have learned how to control the behavior of electrons in such a way that we may see whole new classes of materials, which in turn could comprise new and amazing electrical devices. Harry Monoharan, who is Associate professor, professor of Physics at Stanford, who led the research, said, The behavior of electrons and materials is at the heart of essentially all of today's technologies. We are now able to tune the fundamental properties of electrons so they behave in ways rarely seen in ordinary materials. So what they did was to use a STM, a scanning tunneling microscope, to precisely position carbon monoxide molecules on a very, very smooth copper surface. So they did it in such a way so, so that electrons flowing over over the surface are repelled by these molecules and they're forced into these patterns of flows that are identical to what their behaviors would be if, if there were a magnetic or electrical field present, even though there, was, there were no such fields present at the time. So one example that they pulled off um, was that they, they were able to produce a flow of electrons that acted as if they were under the influence of a magnetic field of 60 Tesla. This is incredible because that's, this is 30% more powerful than any field ever sustained by science. So these electrons were behaving in ways that there was, there's probably no other way to make them behave because science isn't even up to the task of creating a field and sustaining it that long. So who knows what kind of materials and devices this may lead to, perhaps video displays and mobile phones and a host of other devices that we would hardly believe today. Do a Google search for designer electrons if you want to read more about this. Thanks, Bob. It's very satisfying. Thank you, Bob. Rebecca, Yo. tell us about the, the lovely science-based laws that are bills that are being proposed up in our uh, neighboring state, New Hampshire, or nearby state, I should well, say. Well, it's very, very exciting time to be a lady in the United States. 
our listeners may be aware that right now in state legislatures around the U.S., there's been this ongoing war uh, on behalf of the religious right attempting to limit women's access to contraception, sexual health education, and abortion in any way possible. And they can't just come out and make all that illegal. So much like the creationists, they have employed a wedge strategy of making life as difficult as possible for women who want control over their own reproductive health. Some of the bills that have been passing in the U.S. have included uh, those mandating that women be unnecessarily penetrated with an ultrasound wand prior to getting an abortion. Uh, some are allowing pharmacists and doctors to refuse to provide contraception based on religious convictions. And there are even some politicians who are trying to mandate that women need a signed permission slip from a man before getting an abortion. So... Just, that's just to give you like a slight, slight context for those of you who maybe aren't in the U.S. or aren't paying attention. Last week, the New Hampshire House of Representatives passed a bill that would require physicians to give certain materials to any woman seeking an abortion. Uh, those materials are provided under the auspices of informed consent. You know, we need to make sure women have as much information as possible before getting an abortion. The problem is that those materials include uh, statements such as, it is scientifically undisputed that full-term pregnancy reduces a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer. It is also undisputed that the earlier a woman has a first full-term pregnancy, the lower her risk of breast cancer becomes, because following a full-term pregnancy, the breast tissue exposed to estrogen through the menstrual cycle is more mature and cancer-resistant. Uh, in fact, for each year that a woman's first full-term pregnancy is delayed, her risk of breast cancer rises 3.5%. The theory that there is a direct link between abortion and breast cancer builds upon this undisputed foundation. Where do they pull that information from? Their asses, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, they're proctologists. Yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah uh, this particular bit of pseudoscience, the idea that abortion increases a woman's chance of breast cancer, has been bandied about, particularly in anti-choice circles, for a number of years now. And in fact, uh, up until the mid-1990s, there had only been a few small but heavily flawed studies that had been done on this particular topic. And a few of those studies did show that there might be a connection between breast cancer and abortions and miscarriages. However, in the past several decades, we've seen several large-scale studies conducted that show absolutely no connection at all. The organizations like the National Institutes of Health, American Cancer Society, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and even the Susan G. Komen Foundation, which is run by anti-choice fundamentalists, all stand by the fact that there's absolutely no link between abortion and breast cancer. Yeah, I did I did my own literature search just to see what it was, not reading political sites, just look at the literature and see what it shows. If you go back into the 1980s, it looks like there was you know, some debate about it, actually, that you could find articles that come to either conclusion. But then when you look at reviews that are written in the last few years, uh, they, they all agree that there is absolutely no link between abortions mm. and the risk of breast cancer. Right. Those, those papers that were done in the 80s and early 90s were very small, very small sample sizes and had a lot of flaws in them. 
So a coordinated disinformation campaign is underway. Exactly. Well, yeah, you know, now this is one of those things. Um, an- another one that I may have mentioned before on the show, definitely on Skeptic, though, is uh, the idea that uh, one is the idea that abortion leads to depression, which is another thing that is absolutely not supported by the scientific evidence. And uh, the other is that the uh, that a, a fetus is um, a fetus can feel pain at 20 weeks. This is a quote unquote fact that is becoming commonplace in political discussions in the U.S. these days. And it's talked about as though it's scientific fact when, in fact, it is not um, the question of when a fetus can feel pain is actually still up for debate and by no means is 20 weeks uh, an actual medical diagnosis you know, mm-hmm. you know this is something that they've gone with that specific number because these uh, politicians have an agenda and that agenda is to outlaw abortion and so they're using the idea of uh, fetuses feeling pain at 20 weeks to convince courts to outlaw abortion at 20 weeks, despite the fact that it's unconstitutional. Yeah, and there's good reason to think that it's actually not possible for a fetus to perceive pain before 24 weeks gestation, just in terms of the development of the nervous system. Right. So that's that's probably a, that's a better guess at this point in time. Getting back, can I, can I comment on the mental health aspect of it? Yeah. Because, again, I just, just again, looking at the literature to see what it says. There's, no, there's a lot of complexities, actually, to the mental health issue because, as you might imagine, you could, look at the, you could look at studies in a lot of different ways, retrospectively versus prospectively. You could you know, pick out different subpopulations. You know, for example, uh, a correlation, obviously, uh, just saying that women who are getting abortions are more depressed, for example. Well, there's probably something to do with their life situation that led them to the abortion that may have something to do with it. That's not the same thing as saying that abortion causes depression. And when you control for, for those factors, there's, there really isn't any evidence that, that uh, abortions are causally linked to any mental health problem at all. Well, again, they're cherry-picking and exploiting the complexities in that particular part of the research in order to make their case. And if you have your, con- your desired conclusion in mind, you can, you know, there's enough studies out there where you can cherry-pick, you could support almost any position you want. Uh, but the, the systematic reviews out there done by researchers who are trying to get to the bottom of it and know how to control for different variables are all coming to the same conclusion that there's just there's just no causal relationship between abortion and mental illness. Right. And to get back to uh, this particular bill in New Hampshire, the idea that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer. So there's absolutely no evidence to su- suggest that's true. There is evidence to suggest that you uh, women who have uh, children before the age of 30 do uh, they they may have a decreased risk of breast cancer so there's a difference between the outcomes of prospective and retrospective studies retrospective basically means you take women who have breast cancer and you ask them if they had an abortion and prospective means you follow women who have an abortion and then see what their risk of is of developing breast cancer compared to other women you know in the same cohort who didn't have an abortion the retrospective studies did show a higher correlation with having had an abortion, but the prospective study studies didn't. And the, the likely interpretation there is that women who had breast cancer may have been more willing to disclose their prior history of abortion. We're relying upon women to disclose that information. When you follow them 
going forward, prospectively, there's no correlation. So that's prospective data is always better. It's always more reliable because there isn't this recall bias or maybe this willing to disclose bias that could alter the, the data. So the current consensus is no correlation. Right. Uh, despite this fact, this uh, bill did pass through the House, and the way that the original bill passed was uh, not just to declare that that doctors needed to give these these particular pseudoscientific materials to women seeking abortions, but it also uh, wrote down exactly how those doctors should be punished if they failed to follow through with that. And in the original bill, they recommended Class A felonies for any doctor who didn't abide by the law. And that came with up to 15 years in prison uh, for Ouch. for a doctor. and For telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, basically for, for telling the truth. And luckily, I guess, um, that original bill, though it passed through the House, uh, was then reconsidered and went back through the House. The Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee just barely voted in favor of recommending the removal of the Class A felony part. Um, even if that happens, though, the way this bill is written, doctors would still be open to malpractice lawsuits or disciplinary action by the New Hampshire State Board of Medicine if they do, in fact, tell women the truth about uh, abortion and breast cancer. Which means they can lose their license, basically. Yeah. So, you know, for those of you in New Hampshire, you may want to contact your state representatives immediately. Uh, for those of you in the United States, but not in New Hampshire, you can't rest so easy because uh, there are similar pseudoscientific bills um, exactly like this in several other states. And this is basically the religious rights uh, standard operating procedures to introduce uh, the same or very similar bills simultaneously in many different states at once. So Kansas and Oklahoma, you have similar measures that have been proposed. So no matter where you are, if you're in the U.S., um, it might be a good idea to contact your local representatives and just let them know that you support science and reason. And you know the thing I you know I feel obligated to say it's not like we're not taking a political position on the show regarding the abortion debate. I mean this is you know people have the right to, to come to different moral and ethical decisions. Um, you know obviously you know Rebecca you, you have a, a certain position on that. Uh, I do. But have a the point position. is you can't lie about the science yeah. in order in order to make your yes, political right. position and. Not only lying about the science, but trying to pass a law mandating that physicians make the same lie and and trying to punish them for not lying, that is such an abuse of not only professionalism, but of science and reason. That stands aside from the the political debate about abortion. Exactly. It's a completely separate issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, Bob, you got another item. Your full item to talk about has to do with nuclear clocks or atomic clocks. Yeah, Ooh. this one was this one was pretty cool. Get ready for timekeeping that makes atomic clocks look like hourglasses. Scientists have demonstrated the potential of a nuclear clock that could gain or lose only a fraction of a second over get this fourteen billion years, the age of the universe. A team of researchers wow. from the University of New South Wales, the University of Nevada, and Georgia Tech have thought up this um, – well, they didn't actually think this up. They actually 
merely just demonstrated what it, what it could actually do of this superatomic clock of sorts that's, that's based on the oscillations of neutrons instead of electrons. So to put this into perspective a bit, I think I'll just briefly go over some of the, uh, the key clock technologies of the past few centuries that we're all familiar with, although you might not know some of the details. Uh, for example, pe- uh, pendulum clocks. Uh, the first appeared in the mid-1600s. Now, these clocks work because their consistent swing depends only on the length of the arm and not on the weight or the, um, the weight of the arm itself or, the, or whatever weight there might be at the bottom of it or even the arc of its swing really doesn't really matter. They were revolutionary when they appeared because they improved the accuracy of timekeeping from about 15 minutes a day to 15 seconds. And that actually was probably the most dramatic improvement in clock technology for the average person that, that, that I think there ever was. I think it must have been very dramatic. I mean, the other thing that surprised me about pendulum clocks was the fact that they, they got so good that they would only drift by about a hundredth of a second a day. Which is a lot more accurate than uh, mm. than, I, than I thought, and actually in, is more accurate than a quartz clock, which was a surprise because this technology came afterwards. Now, they, the quartz clocks um, are probably the most common of all clocks. Clocks, if you add, I mean, so everyone's got got wristwatch. Yeah, I think their big appeal, Bob, was not that they were just more accurate; they're just they're cheap. Yeah, they're cheap and portable. Cheap and portability, right? They Mine were, says they were the huge. Avengers, on and it, as, yeah. as it turns out. Um, you know, they only lose 10 to 20 seconds a year. I mean, that's nothing. That's really nothing. Who cares? So you're at the point where just for the average person, it, that that level of accuracy is, is perfectly fine. And yeah, like, like you said, Steve, it's, it's, you know, portability is, is a huge factor. Um, now, just real quickly, the, uh, the quartz clocks, of, of course, depends on the uh, piezoelectric effect. Uh, essentially, electricity passing through what causes the crystal to vibrate very consistently, which then you could use as a basis for your timekeeping. Then, then of course, we've got atomic clocks um, that are the current gold standard of timekeeping. Now, they're, they keep incredibly accurate time using the orbits of electrons, kind, kind of like a pendulum. Uh, depending on your source, they can lose one second uh, in an amazing 20 to 60 million years, which, of wow. course, is amazingly accurate. That's, that's awesome, man. Isn't that, yeah, isn't, that a, isn't that amazing? One second in in many millions of years is incredible. But as awesome as that is, it's nothing compared to what the potential of nuclear clocks may be. Don't even. You're scaring me now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this proposed method would use a UV laser to orient electrons of a thorium atom in a very specific way. And essentially what this does is it opens a door to tweak the energy state of the nucleus and use the resulting oscillations of a neutron to make a clock that's a hundred times more accurate than the best thing that we have today. Now, this potential revolution in accuracy is because the, the neutrons are denser and more, much more tightly packed than electrons. This makes them pretty much immune to electric fields and magnetic fields, which cause atomic clocks to drift by as much as they do over over millions of years. And it, I mean, they don't drift much, obviously, but they've even they've even now figured out potentially a way to get rid of even that that tiny drift. So while researching this, uh, I found a lot of online commenters that. Um, that they really didn't understand what the big deal was, and they thought that this inaccuracy at this level is just total overkill. What you know? What's the point? What possible advantage could uh, nuclear clocks have over atomic clocks? But clocks with that level of accuracy, uh, it's definitely not a you know a, su- a superfluous improvement. Professor Victor Flambaum, who's the head of theoretical physics at the uh, the UNSW School of Physics, said that it would allow scientists to test fundamental physical theories at unprecedented levels of precision and provide an unmatched tool for applied physics research. We could also 
Um, this was interesting. We could also pair up an atomic and nuclear clock and potentially discover that some laws of physics are not cons- are not constant in time. Now that would be uh, an incredible discovery. You know, tr- finding out that some of these some of these laws that we think are are constant and unchanging, if we could find even t- a tiny bit of change over you know expanses of time, that would truly would be revolutionary. Um, and of course, we could also greatly improve uh, the accuracy of GPS satellites. Um, so that your navigator wouldn't in your car wouldn't tell you to take a left turn at the next lake. And I'm not sure I couldn't I couldn't find any. Uh, so when do you think uh, that we're going to see this? You know, when's it going to be real? And my answer is, who the hell knows? I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, they, 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 although they they did have some surprising confidence in in their ability to figure this out. The biggest hurdle apparently is finding the exact um, laser frequency. Now these lasers they're using a uh, uh, petahertz frequencies. Um, they're using a petahertz frequency lasers to, to do this. At least that's what they envision. And uh, one scientist described this not as a needle in a haystack, but a needle in a million haystacks, trying to find that precise frequency uh, that, could, that could achieve this result. Apparently, it's going to, it could take some time. Maybe they can use this to measure how long it takes for neutrinos to go from their source to the detector. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, Evan, uh, tell us what you know about near-death experiences. We've chatted about these on the show before, but maybe we have some new information. We have, and we've talked about the near-death experience. And is it, in fact, a way of proving life after death? That's the, that's the main Guessing point. Guessing no. Well, <laughs> look, you can <laughs> believe on, what you Steve, want to believe. Do you have any faith? Come on. What are you talking about? Right. I'm guessing no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are folks that actually... Study lucid dreaming. You guys know what lucid dreaming is? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love it. Love it, too. I love it. Lucid dream is any dream in which, well, you're aware that you are dreaming. And in the lucid dream, you may be able to exert some degree of control over the participation within the dream, manipulate the, Im- the images you see, manipulate the environment. The, manipulate yeah. the environment. And uh, it's actually a scientifically well-established phenomenon that lucid dreaming does happen. Sure. Well, uh, the folks who actually study lucid dreaming for a living rounded up some volunteers and conditioned them to dream about near-death experiences specifically, including the classic scenario of a near-death experience, which is the scenario in which you're flying or drifting towards a light at the end of a tunnel. And what the researchers are saying is that their experiments have demonstrated that these sorts of visions are likely the product of the human mind rather than supernatural phenomenon because they are able to condition these dreamers to dream about that very thing. Um, These experiments were done at the Out-of-Body Experience Research Center in Los Angeles in which they had uh, groups of people. They're saying four groups of 10 to 20 volunteers. I'm saying that's probably roughly 60 people. Uh, were trained to perform a series of mental steps upon awakening during the night that might lead them to have that out-of-body experience that or near-death experience that so many people have described. And uh, they were conditioned to try and dream about floating through the tunnel to, to the bright light that you typically hear about. Eighteen of these volunteers were able to dream that exact experience as described. Just by prepping themselves before they went to sleep, like, you know, saying, I want to think about this. Exactly, right. They were given essentially this target to go after, and they were able to achieve it. You know, near-death experiences have been widely reported. Uh, they often get big headlines, and uh, including famous people that have 
uh, said they have had these sort of near-death experiences uh, one way or the other, either from a tragic accident that they were involved with or undergoing uh, surgery, right, in a hospital, and they see themselves kind of floating up above the, uh, the operating table, and they can talk about things that are in the room, and then, of course, the white light at the end of the tunnel. Eight million Americans are reported to have a near-death experience, and it could be even more than that. Those are just the ones that have been reported. Neurologists believe that near-death experiences are generated by the same brain mechanisms that cause lucid dreams. So there is, there's overlap here. There's, yeah, that was the hypothesis that they were testing, basically. So, I mean, you can look at this a few ways. You know, there's, there's lots of evidence to suggest that the, the near-death experience is a brain experience. All the elements can be produced by different physiological conditions, lack of oxygen, for example, or drugs, or sometimes during seizures. Um, So there's lots of reasons to think that this is a brain experience. This is one more bit of evidence uh, that these types of experiences can be generated by the brain, in this case by techniques that induce lucid dreaming. The, The one thing I found most compelling about this were those individuals who not only uh, reported uh, going through the tunnel, but actually like got to the end of the tunnel and then had an experience where they were visiting with their dead relatives. Um, so they actually confabulated the rest of you know the, the near-death experience, which just shows how easy it is for that to happen. But of course, you know those who uh, believe in that that near-death experience is a, a spiritual experience and not a brain experience could always say that well, okay, you're simulating a near-death experience by specifically training people to have a dream-like experience that just mimics the the details or some of the features of a near-death experience. And that's a legitimate point. I don't think yeah, this I proves that. that it's not a brain experience. Right. I, I think you could say it, at best it's it's consistent evidence to show that the brain can have these experiences, but it, it certainly doesn't prove that there aren't near-death experiences that aren't spiritual. I don't think there's any evidence that that they are, but this you know that's the limitation in terms of the implications of this experiment. It could just be a simulation um, and not actually producing the same experience. You know what I mean? The researchers were quick to point that out, Steve, that this is by no means conclusive. It is one study. There should be more research done, more replication. It needs to pass the peer review process. So they certainly did this and yeah. presented it in, in the correct context, and that was very good to hear. Right. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how far they could take this paradigm, you know, this lucid dreaming to, in order to investigate the, the near-death experience and see what else we could learn from it. But it's, I think it's always going to be just one piece to a, a more complicated puzzle, uh, but, but an interesting one. When I'm lucid dreaming, I'm always – the first thing I typically think about is – restraining myself to not expand the dream so much that I'm going to break the dream and wake up. There's that fine line of doing yeah, things that will But it always happens, doesn't it? It always it, happens. Eventually it does, but you try to stay in there as long as you can. I have found in my lucid dreaming experiences and from what I've read that the, the, the more excited you become, uh, the greater the odds that you're going you're gonna to fall out of it and, and wake up or potentially segue into a, a, another dream where you're, you're not lucid. And one method that I've, that I've used and also read about, if you find yourself kind of losing your grasp on your, your lucidity in your dream, is look at your hands. For some reason, if you look at your hand, when you feel the dream slipping away, it actually can re-anchor you into the lucid dream and, and maintain uh, your, you know, your lucidity, which was a pretty, pretty cool little trick. 
Yeah, but then you can't concentrate on moving the planets and the stars and the sky and all close to cool yeah, well, stuff. Yeah, just do that after you look at your hand. <laughs> I always try to fly. That, it's like the, the default thing I do when I become conscious or slightly conscious in a dream. You know what Freud said about that, Jay? No. What does it mean that I'm... Gay. Okay. <laughs> Dreaming that you're flying is an expression of latent homosexuality. Oh, my really? God. Freud thought latent? everything was <laughs> an expression of latent homosexuality. Uh, times when I've lucid dreamed, I've marveled at how realistic it is. Mm. But the problem is I'm, I'm marveling with my dream brain, you know, which is not doesn't have as much reality testing as my waking brain. So you're much more easy to impress. You know, when you're dreaming, in other words. But nevertheless, to a certain, it, yeah, to a certain to a, extent, yeah. It's well, again, when you're when you're lucid, it's part way. You know, it's like halfway between being awake and, and dreaming. When you're full on dreaming, yeah, you have like almost no reality testing. So you you know you'll take almost anything as real. Um, that's what keeps you asleep. It keeps you from waking up because of the unreality of your dreams. Lucidity is a breakdown of that. When you have a little bit of reality testing, you say, hey, this doesn't make sense. This isn't real. I must be dreaming. Uh, but it's not enough to fully wake you up. But that's an inherently unstable state, which is why you eventually either you know, either wake up for real or dream you wake up, which is another way of losing the lucidity. Although I'll point out that the same is true when you're awake in that you're assessing the reality of things with your brain. You know, things feel real to your brain, but that's flawed and and artifactual and constructed and biased and, and subject to illusions. Uh, it's just that we don't know any better. That's just that's the most lucid state that we have. Um, so we 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 can compare different states, and we could say, oh yeah, you know, when I'm dreaming, I'm not making sense, etc. Same may be true when you're awake. You just have nothing better to compare it to. It's all we know. It's, our, it's still, in every state, it's still your brain assessing your own brain. And, and not, uh, you're not assessing it with something outside of your brain that's objective. So, you know, in, in a way, it kind of makes sense that it always seems real to you at the time. Right, so your brain could actually be fooling you into thinking that you are more lucid than you may actually be. Right, that's, that's, that's another way of saying it. It's exactly right. That's a good point. All right, let's move on. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? It is time for Who's That Noisy? Each week, I play a clip of noises. At least most weeks I do. And uh, we ask the audience to guess exactly who or what was that noisy. And I'm going to play for you to remind you of last week's clip. And here he is. The fuel supply would be plentiful, and it could, in this embodiment, be carried out, we think, in a very simple manner. Now, he had a little Czechoslovakian accent there, so I'll read that to folks who didn't know exactly what he said. The fuel supply will be plentiful, and it could, in this embodiment, could be carried out, we think, in a very simple manner. On March 23rd in 1989... Pons and Fleischmann. Oh. Yes, Martin Fleischmann, along with his uh, buddy Stanley Pons, had their famous news conference announcing they have achieved cold fusion. That was the voice of Martin Fleischmann mm-hmm. in an interview that took place a few weeks uh, after that big announcement, which rocked the scientific community. Did it not? Oh, yeah. yeah. For a very short period of time. <laughs> Fleischmann, uh, he was born in Czechoslovakia but immigrated to Britain, and he's noted for his work in electrochemistry. And, of course, he came to public prominence through the, uh, you know, announcement that he and his cohorts had successfully made cold fusion using 
palladium. Bullshit. Cold fusion is a type of nuclear reaction which would occur at a relatively low temperature as opposed to, say, you know, the tens of millions of degrees in which fusion happens in the stars and and the sun. Uh, Relatively very, very low compared to that. And this uh, new type of nuclear reaction was proposed to explain reports by experimenters of anonymously high energy generation under certain uh, laboratory conditions. But it has been rejected by the mainstream scientific community because the original experiment results, uh, they couldn't be replicated consistently or reliably, and there is no generally accepted model. There's no theoretical model of how cold fusion could possibly work. Well, Evan, do you think this is something that we shouldn't pursue? I don't, you know, with private funds, if someone wants to go for it, sure. But, uh, you know, what happens is these folks wind up asking for grants from governments, uh, other public uh, sources of money and so forth. And I I really don't think we should be throwing our uh, public money down those rat holes. Private money, there's not, you know, not much you can do about that. Yeah, I guess so. If someone wants to blow millions of dollars on something, (laughs) you know, something that doesn't have a theoretical model to it. Yeah, this is playing the scientific lottery. It's a, a, a low probability, but huge payoff. So, you know, how, so how do we decide our research priorities? You, know, you can emphasize the huge payoff if we ever did get cold fusion to work, or you can emphasize the astonishing low probability, since we, it doesn't seem like it should work given what we know. All right. Thanks, Evan. And who got that correct? Uh, we did have a winner. Uh, this week, the first person to answer correctly from the message boards, that's at sguforums.com, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Clintistwood. <laughs> Clintistwood. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this Clintistwood, you, Mr. Mr. Christian Fringenson? Uh First one to guess correctly that that was, in fact, Martin Fleischman. Congratulations. Well done. And what do you got for this week? For this week, we are announcing another little contest in which we would like the listeners of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe to provide us with next week's Who's That Noisy? And what do we want that Who's That Noisy to be next week? We want you, the listener, to find for us the most skeptical statement ever uttered by a cartoon character. Well, good luck, everyone. Okay. That sounds interesting. Thanks, Evan. One question this week, this one comes from Liz in Scotland. Liz writes, just a quick question. I often wondered why America kept the imperial system for measurements, miles, inches, etc. Do you think it would be better for science teaching in particular if you switched to the metric system? And what problems do you think it would create? Thanks for the great show. We often get asked that question by our international listeners, those outside the United States, why we talk in feet and miles and and such. English. Furlongs. Yeah. Leagues. For longs per fortnight. So, yeah, I don't know. The short answer is, back in the 70s, you guys all remember this when we were, this is before Rebecca's time, but the rest of us, there was the, uh, here comes the metric system, right? We were all learning. This was, we were supposed to be totally <laughs> switched that. over to the metric system by like the end of the decade. And I don't know what happened. The whole, it just fizzled out. It never happened. It's the, you know, the same thing as what happened with the dollar coin. Yeah. And the second dollar yeah, coin. The third dollar coin. <laughs> nice idea. The third but dollar coin. Just didn't catch. Culture's hard to change, I guess. Yeah, especially top down. But we do technically we do. use both, right? If you look on our containers of milk or juice and so forth, you have, yes, ounces, but also it'll often convert it well, to. Well, that's true, liters. but I mean, milk um, comes in gallons, but our soda comes in liters. We buy two liters of Coke and we don't think anything about it. 
Yeah. I never thought about that. You're we right. We have a hybrid system. You know, we we, are, we have no rate. problem with you know 35 millimeter cameras or uh, with lots of things. You know, but there are there are certain things. Some of it is industry, like retooling the dairy industry to deal in liters instead of gallons. Apparently, would be a big deal. Uh, others is just culture. You know, we you get you think your whole life in miles. You have a feel for it. It's hard to get people to convert. You know. The, the uh, U.S. would have to pass a law and say, that's it, people, we're doing it. You know, as of this date, no more English system. You know, all roadsides are going to be changed. All cars that are sold in this country have to only have kilometers. Uh, and I guess just politically, they were unwilling to impose that upon upon our society. So we're st- Yeah, I think people in this country wouldn't take too eh, well to it's like that sort pulling of off change. a Band-Aid, just do it fast. <laughs> Get it out of the way, and then one generation, it'll be like it, it was always that way. Yeah, I mean, if you make a, a half-hearted effort to just sort of ask people to please yeah. start using metric, and particularly if you teach it in terms of, like, when I, I remember when I was in grade school, I was taught metric as um, a formula. Uh, so, you know, there would be a very specific formula, formula you'd use to convert, for instance, Fahrenheit to Celsius or, you know, this or that. When in fact, you know, that's not really how people learn to use things. You know, you learn things like that based on, for okay, for instance, temperature. You know, instead of learning that 70 degrees Fahrenheit equals whatever it is, um, 18 degrees Celsius, is that right? Roughly. Um, Something about that. You, you, would, you would learn that, you know, oh, well, room temperature is 18 degrees Celsius, you know, and you would learn what the boiling point is. Um, I think it's, I guess it's more like 20 degrees Celsius. Um, yeah, you got to live it, in other words. Right. You, you know, people will learn it a lot faster if you, if you relate it to your everyday life as opposed to teaching people certain um, formulas yeah. for, for translating. Yeah, all well, kids are true. taught metric in school. But but you're right. It's sort of yeah. taught as just a, it just doesn't yeah. It does, it's it's a, just another thing that they have to learn. It's not they don't live it. Yeah, we just have to bite the bullet. You know, it's one of those deals. Like let's do it. Why are we waiting? It's yeah. ridiculous. We haven't done it yet. And if we're gonna go that far, let's make time metric while we're at it. Let's just get the whole thing done in one big felt swoop. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> that is, that is a little crazy. Centon, just hold on to centon there, Evan. A ten day. <laughs> Frack that. <laughs> All right, so are we going to make a commitment on the SGU to go all totally metric from now on? Oh, that's that's going to be a hard habit to break. Well, and the the problem is that we're you know, in the business of educating people and being understood, and I think what's most important is that the majority of our audience understands what we are saying when we yeah. say it. And I think that maybe sometimes that means we use imperial as well as metric. We do try to use both. Try to use yeah, both we try to use both. Yeah, yeah, I do. So I hope that answers your question, Liz. We have a name that logical fallacy this week. This one comes from the comments to a blog post that I wrote. One of the commenters wrote the following. Natural selection, or selection in general, explains how two horses can become all the different breeds we have today, including zebras. This is also how the finches of Darwin fame have longer beaks some years and shorter beaks other years. Everyone knows this happens. The question is this. Does that explain how a single-celled life form could become an elephant? Some question that it does. 
This is called microevolution versus macroevolution, aka the development, aka the development of species or kinds versus the development of breeds. To make an analogy, everyone knows you can make a ladder to the roof of the house. Does that mean you can make a ladder to the sun? Well, it depends on what your building material. Yeah, is. What's the major malfunction so, there? Straw man. What's the straw man? Well, just the way that evolution is characterized. Uh, you know, evolution obviously isn't merely horses becoming different breeds. It's it, it's so much bigger than that. It's just so many interlocking theories that that comprise evolution uh, that are that are all consistent with each other. Whether you look at it, you know, whether you're uh, the, from the fossil evidence or the genetic evidence or just the you know the the biological evidence, even com- computer simulations. It's just it's just such an unfair characterization of what evolution is. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the in terms of that, in terms of saying, yeah, horses can become other kinds of horses, uh, even zebras, although horses did not evolve into zebras, but but not cross over like one kind evolving into another kind. That's a fundamental misunderstanding that, in my experience, most people have, and every single creationist I've ever spoken to or read has. Uh, evolution does not can, so if you, if you think about the process of evolution or the progress of evolution, it's like going down, branching down different channels. And once you've gone you know, down a certain path, you're constrained by that path. Now you can develop variations on the basic anatomical theme that you have so far, but you can't go back and make completely different developmental choices in order to look like something else, right? So, yes, you're never going to have a cat evolving into a crocodile. You know, they are, they are down separate paths, evolutionary paths. So creationists just don't get that. Uh, but there's another Wrong. massive logical fallacy in here, and what's that? Uh, what about uh, a false analogy? Yeah, I mean, I mean he says to make an analogy, so I mean, it kind of suggests it. But, yeah, it's a total false analogy at the end there. Yeah, I mean, you're you know you're comparing uh, you know building a ladder to to the roof of your house and then going and then going to the sun, uh, which is ridiculous. I mean, that that kind of extrapolation is is, is kind of silly. I mean, you've got evolution which is supported by by so much evidence. Uh, you're not you know you're not actually breaking any laws of physics by evolving by, by having the animals yeah. evolve when you know when you're building a ladder to the sun is just clearly yeah. I silly. think that's the nub. And this is, is not going to happen. The, it's a false analogy because building a ladder to the sun breaks the laws of physics. And there's nothing in evolution yeah. that breaks the laws of physics uh, or any yeah. you know, scientific law or principle or anything. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's immediate. Uh, the analogy breaks down immediately. Let's go on to, uh, to science fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, that I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. So, Rebecca, you missed it last week. Bob's record was broken. His streak was broken. Uh, I'm so sorry I wasn't there to rub it in his face. <laughs> yeah, don't Thank worry, Rebecca. So much, I, I did Rebecca. plenty for me and you. Good. No more Good. cookies I with you. I knew I could count on you. It would have been so cool if I lasted... Like six months or, you know, four, oh, five yeah. months. Win some, that would have so defied awesome. the odds. Win some, you lose one or two. Bob, at least you had a streak. Well, actually, I have a streak. <laughs> I have a, a crap streak going on right now, man. <laughs> All right. Now, here we go. Item number one. 
New measurements indicate that Venice continues to sink into the ocean, contradicting the prior conclusion that the city was stable. Item number two, a new study finds that the whooping cough epidemic currently occurring in Australia is mostly due to a new strain of B. pertussis, which is not well covered by the vaccine. And item number three, a new survey finds that parents of children with cancer trust information they find on the Internet as much or more than information from their health care provider. Rebecca, since you were off last week, I'll allow you to go first this week. Uh, Okay, so Venice is continuing to sink in the ocean, contradicting the prior conclusion that it was stable. This is mostly surprising to me because I don't recall a, a report saying that it was stable. Like, in my head, Venice was always continuing to sink. So, I don't know about that. Does that mean that that's more likely to be science? Or does it mean it's more likely to be fiction? I don't know. New strain of B. pertussis, which is making a whooping cough outbreak in Australia much worse. Yeah, that makes sense. There are a lot of difficult issues with whooping cough. It's not just the normal Jenny McCarthy, you know, anti-vaccine for babies thing. You know, we have a problem with getting adults to get their booster shots. And also there's the fact that it can switch things up. Parents of children with cancer trust info they find on the internet much, as much or more than information from their healthcare provider. That is terrifying. The people that we most often see resorting to pseudoscience they find on the internet are people in desperate circumstances, usually that they can't control. And uh, what could be worse than having a child with cancer, particularly if it's uh, something that's that they're not going to live through? Those parents, I think, would be the most at risk for getting sucked into pseudoscience or all natural cures or basically any sort of alternative to facing the truth. Um, so that, unfortunately, I find very believable. So I guess I'm just going to go with the Venice one. That one smells weird to me, um, mostly because I, I didn't realize that it was stable. So I don't know. Maybe the finding is the opposite. Maybe it found that it's actually stable. So I'm going to go with that one. Okay, Jay. The one about Venice actually uh, sinking as opposed to not what sinking. What are you sinking? Um, what are you sinking yeah, about? I love that. We are sinking. We are sinking. What are you sinking about? Uh. <laughs> Anywho, uh, so we got this situation here with Venice and the water and the sinking and all that stuff. I I actually think and never stop thinking that Venice was sinking. I mean, I've, I, I had the pleasure of going on my honeymoon uh, in October there with my wife, and there was definite signs of water problems and stuff like that, that from talking to people, yeah, they have a, it's, it is still a problem and they still get flooding and, you know, I guess it's happening more and more. So I'm going to really think it, it, it seems to be that, that Venice is sinking. A uh, study finds that the whooping cough epidemic is a, from a, a new strain. I, I haven't read anything about this, but I wouldn't be surprised. Does that mean that a new a new uh, vaccine would have to be made and the old vaccine wouldn't work anymore? Or is, or is pertussis one of those things like the flu where they are constantly changing the vaccine? I don't know the answer to that. But okay, but I, I don't think it's that big of a deal that there's a new strain out there. And that, that seems to make 
makes sense on the surface. And then the last one in the study about the parents uh, of children trust information they find on the internet as much or more information as their healthcare provider. Yeah, that's I don't know about that one. That's interesting. I mean, I I would I'd like to think that parents for the most part are very particular about the information that they find. I mean, you know, how many people are are out there that actually think that every BS thing they read about cures for cancer and everything are they trusting it versus, you know, are they really going to try to get serious medical treatment for their child? I would tend to think that most parents don't go the route of the BS stuff, especially early on in the treatment. Maybe if their child is is in trouble and it's at the end of where they don't have much time left, they might dip into pseudoscience. But I, I don't know. I think I don't believe that one. I think that one's the fake. Okay, Bob. Yeah, sinking Venice. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've always heard that it's that it's sinking, and I actually missed as well the fact that uh, the the uh, prior conclusion that it was stable. But that doesn't bother me too much. Um, I'm not sure even how long ago it was. I could have easily missed that. So uh, that kind of strikes me as uh, as as science. The second one, the whooping cough epidemic. Yeah, I mean, I I can just go I can go both ways with this. Yeah, I could see a new strain. I really don't know and much about pertussis and how it works uh, to really make an informed uh, guess on this one. I think I'd, I'll tentatively say that that's, that that's science as well. Third one, though, uh, the children with cancer. I was actually kind of surprised. I think Jay totally nailed this one. <laughs> Jay. I mean, I, he, Jay, you nailed pretty much every point that, that I was going to say, that, uh, that I, I could see parents being just so freaked out that their kids have cancer that they're just going to listen to whatever their doctor says. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm going to say that one is fiction as well. And Evan, okay, Venice continuing to sink into the ocean. Uh, I hadn't heard that there was any stability to that. I always thought it was being measured as such, and I don't know what is it like. It's got to be what like an inch a year or something. I, I don't. Know. Yeah, it's private. Million, oh wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Met, metric, metric system, one point five uh, centimeters a year. Uh, so. I, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, I was thinking maybe the same as Rebecca regarding that one a little bit. Um, but the whooping cough epidemic, the second one, sure, for the same reasons also Rebecca mentioned. Well, I think that's the most believable of the three. Uh, the last one, yeah. uh, parents of children with cancer trust information on the Internet as much or more. I think maybe the trick here is as much or more. Uh, I have a hard time believing that 50% parents are, are would lean in, in that direction over their health care provider. I can't see that being true. I'm going to have to say that that one's fiction too. So let's start with number two. A new study sure. finds that the whooping cough epidemic currently occurring in Australia is mostly due to a new strain of B pertussis, which is not well covered by the vaccine. You guys all think that one is science, and that one is Science! Science! science. Uh, that is the Bordetella pertussis, for those of you who are interested. So answer Australia my question. Australia is having, I'm, I will, is having a uh, problem with a whooping cough epidemic. And a recent study showed that of those people who are infected, 84% have a new strain, up from 31% 10 years ago. This strain is not well covered by the vaccine. It has some activity, but the, the antibodies made by the, the current acellular vaccine doesn't create as much immunity 
as against this new strain, and it wears off more quickly. Uh, a while ago, the, the pertussis vaccine was changed. The whole cell vaccine contained hundreds of antigens and actually broader coverage. That was switched to the acellular vaccine, which has only a few antigens and has a narrower coverage. So the medical experts are now thinking about what to do at this point. One solution is just to do more frequent boosters uh, in order to keep the immunity higher and therefore more effective even against the strain. Or they have to engineer a new vaccine that, that covers antigens in this new strain. Estimates are that for, uh, for infants that contract whooping cough, one in 200 die. So this is not a benign disease, as the anti-vaccinationists wow. would have you believe. This is a serious illness. Uh, it is something that we need to address as a serious health care issue. And um, the vaccine is still the most effective treatment uh, against it, prevention against it. But uh, we need to tweak it. You know, the, the, the bug evolved. We need, we need to keep up with it. Damn evolution. Let's go back to number one. New measurements indicate that Venice continues to sink into the ocean, contradicting the prior conclusion that the city is stable. Rebecca, you think this one is fiction. The guys think this one is science. I'm becoming less sure. And this one Uh, is... As you should. uh, Science. Sorry, Rebecca. Bad for me, bad for Venice. Yeah. So, Jay, here's the thing. It's like one of those things where... You're right for the wrong reason, and I'm like chomping at the bit to correct you, but it would obviously give away the game. The ocean levels have been rising. So some of the what you're seeing could easily be explained as ocean levels rising. So there's two things happening at the same time. Is Venice, Venice actually sinking into the ocean versus the water level itself rising? Um, it was believed that Venice was, in fact, stable, no longer sinking. But... Um, Recent, more accurate measurements uh, with, you know, GPS satellites and whatnot, you know, we're able to to do um, more accurate measurements. They find that Venice is sinking by two millimeters per year, wow. which is about the same rate that the water levels are rising by about two millimeters per year. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but you think over 10 years, that's 20 millimeters. Over the next 100 years, that's 200 millimeters. So that you know, it's significant. It adds up, and of course, if the if water levels continue to rise, that adds to the problem as well. Yeah, Venice is also tilting a little bit. They found it's not sinking symmetrically. It's like that island that's going to capsize know? someday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh. Senator said that island's going to yeah, capsize. Yeah, Hank Johnson. forgot about that. Uh, yeah, what to do about it? Who knows? You know, that, that's an engineering issue, I guess. I don't know if that there is anything they can do about it with existing technology. All of this means that a new survey finds that parents of children with cancer trust information they find on the internet as much or more than information from their healthcare provider is fiction. Uh, this yeah, is one of those. That's yeah, it's one of those articles I, I read. I'm like, oh, that's good. But you know, we, we tend to be a little cynical, I guess, or or pessimistic. We encounter so much of the other side so often that it's easy to get pessimistic when you're a skeptic. So I think Rebecca, you you know, uh, fell into that trap that I was sort of expecting. Um, what this what this survey found? Uh, this is a survey by the University of Buffalo, so right in your neighborhood, Rebecca. That um, parents distrust information they see on they find on the internet and that distrust increases with the severity of their child's cancer. Mm. 
and so Jay and Bob, you pretty much hit it. As parents get more and more anxious for their kids, they get much more responsible and discriminating and skeptical of information that they see. They're less willing to, uh, to trust information they find on the Internet. And when they do go on the Internet, they go to trusted websites like university or professional websites. They are much more likely to trust the, the uh, personal information they get directly from their healthcare provider. All good. I mean, it's, it's exactly what we would want. I, you know, I guess it brings into focus the fact that uh, you know, a lot of what we deal with in terms of alternative medicine and pseudoscience is, is a vocal minority, but we have to remember it is actually still the minority, um, as vocal and, you know, and disturbing as it is. It also means I think that people are getting savvy. They know that there's a lot of crap on the Internet. You can't just trust anything you read on the Internet. But if there is one thing that's unfortunate in all of this is that parents – and this is actually kind of the take that the researchers were, were, were taking. Uh, they were looking at it more as you know, the Internet can be a useful resource in educating patients and parents about their illness. And it's unfortunate that the useful information is so diluted – with nonsense and crap, that uh, it, it's, it becomes weakened as a resource, that parents can't trust the information they find on the Internet. Yeah, you kind of lose the Internet as a, as, a, as a practical source of information because it's just buried. The good information is buried in all the nonsense, um, even though it is you know, a minority of people who are promoting that. Even though I lost time. <laughs> yeah, if you had to lose on one, that was the one to do it with. Yeah, there are definitely times where there are items you want to be true or you want to be false. And What's the opposite of a Pyrrhic victory? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. The opposite, opposite of a Pyrrhic victory. A. Well, whatever it is, that's what <laughs> I'm experiencing. Um, Freude? I don't know. <laughs> no? Yeah. What are you thinking about? That's just a word I think he wanted to say. I don't know. Isn't that, I don't know... Could, so other foreign words like ennui? I don't know. Is that no, none of these words are correct. <laughs> yeah, you just, maybe there's a Latin uh, phrase that I could throw out there. Just stop. Just stop. Lux just veritas? No, wait. <laughs> yeah, lux es veritas? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Jay, give us a we're quote. We're up the room here. I got a quote sent in by a listener named Ashley Spahala. Just so you know, I, I love it when people send me in quotes. I get to read a bunch of different ones, and you know, I get to pick the best one, but I still get to read a lot of cool quotes that our listeners have. So please do send me in those quotes. They, they let me cherry-pick the good ones so you guys can, um, can enjoy those. Saves me time as well, so thank you. This quote is from a scientist named Bernard Haish, and the quote is, Advances are made by answering questions. Discoveries are made by questioning answers. And Bernard Haish is a German-born American astrophysicist who has done research in solar stellar astrophysics and some other stuff about electrodynamics that I can't pronounce. Bernard Haish! Thanks, Jay. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Graceful Thank ending. You, Very nice. Thanks, well Steve. Really. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> <laughs> the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. 
For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.